The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are stepping into the world of science journalism. First, I'll be speaking with Katie Palmer about her direct route into science journalism through a master's in science reporting and her role as an editor of online content. Then we'll speak with Michael Siegel about how he transitioned from conducting research to developing a science and culture magazine. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me is Katie Palmer, Senior Editor of the Online Science and Health section for Wired. Katie, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so let's first talk about how you personally got into the field of science journalism. So you earned a a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Williams College with a, a specialization in neuroscience. So why did you decide to pursue a career in science journalism instead of continuing to work in science? Um, so Williams is a pretty small liberal arts college, but they do have great opportunities for, for lab work for undergrads. So I did a senior thesis um, where I sort of combined the resources of one of my biochemistry professors and one of the neuroscience professors. So I did you know, the whole year of research uh, looking into protein expression in a very specific rat population, uh, looking into their anxiety behaviors. And after that year of lab work, I kind of realized that I wasn't into the repetitive nature of that work quite so much. Um, so then, but I realized that I still loved science and I'd always, I'd been working a little bit with chemistry students on editing their lab reports and things like that. So I had at least some background in writing and organizing ideas and paper. Um, so I was literally looking at the office of career counseling at a book about alternative, alternative science careers and science writing was there. And I had never really conceived of that as a profession before, but I started looking a little bit more, uh, doing a little bit more writing myself and at the very end of college. And then I applied to the NYU science writing program and got in. So that was literally my first introduction. <laughs> Great. Okay. So there was not really like a particular moment in time when you realized that you preferred writing about science to actually doing it. It was just a gradual process. It was just having to get experience doing science over a year and then realizing, I guess, um, by editing papers by chemistry students that you preferred that to actually doing lab work. Yeah, and I mean, I think it was sort of, I think a lot of scientists, and especially a lot of the people who end up at SHRP, have that same sort of gradual realization. Some of them get all the way through their PhD before they realize that they aren't quite as in love with lab work as they, <laughs> as they thought they were before. I'm glad I didn't get that far Yeah, right. Uh, before I, I made the switch. But I also wasn't sure that I wanted to do science journalism. I just knew that I was interested in engaging with scientific ideas and potentially maybe educating the public about those ideas. I didn't know exactly what form I wanted that to take. Um, but SHRP has sort of a, a generalist education in addition to the very specific journalistic education. Okay, so the master's you completed, it was in science, health, and environmental reporting at NYU's Journalism Institute. Um, so how, how did you hear about this program, and why did you choose to do a master's in science reporting? Um, you know, I can't remember exactly how I learned about it, but I think I was just doing a lot of internet research, and I came across you know the three main programs, and I think maybe there were four even at the time, uh, Boston, Santa Cruz. I think at the time there was also a Johns Hopkins program at NYU. I applied to a few of those um, and just made the, the choice uh, to go to NYU in the end. Um, 
yeah, I think that's how that went. Okay. Um, is there a particular reason why you chose to do a master's and continue your education in the field as opposed to just getting into the workforce right away? Um, for me, I had almost no prior journalism experience. I think for a lot of people who have that experience and who can find themselves internships without the support of a master's program, it's totally viable to just dive in and mm-hmm. you know make those, those contacts on their own. But I had absolutely nothing. I didn't know the basics about like, you know, <laughs> the inverted pyramid structure for a news story. So for me, the master's was really valuable. It you know, gave me the basic grounding in journalism and reporting. I remember there being a point even where I was like, oh, I have to call people on the phone now. Like I barely <laughs> even realized that like interviewing people in person was part of the process. Mm. I was just like, oh, maybe I'll read papers and then I'll write about them because I know how to interpret papers a little bit. Um, so I, I needed that, mm. that crash course. Okay. Okay, I see. All right, so then I'd like to ask you if you think a specialized education in either science or journalism is necessary to be qualified for a career in science journalism. Hmm. Well, I think, let's see, a specialized education. Mm-hmm. Pro- I think post-college. Hmm. I, post-college, almost certainly not. Um, I know tons of incredibly talented science journalists that don't have that very specific education. I think it helps a lot to have, you know, a deep and abiding love for science, um, probably through the undergraduate years and, you know, probably, or maybe in in addition, a deep and abiding love for journalism and writing, uh, through, through those early years of your education. But, um, I don't, I don't think it's at all a requirement uh, to continue that education in either way to become successful. All right. All right, then. So which do you think is more important for a science journalist? Uh, A solid understanding of scientific principles and how scientific research works or good writing and overall communication skills? Oh, that's that's the toughest question, right? (laughs) I think, you know, as somebody who works with lots of science journalists now, it's it's tough to find somebody who does both really well. It's always about finding the balance. Um, You know, you want to writers that are fantastic on their scientific understanding, but they need a lot more help with the writing um, and, and vice versa. And I think the the greatest thing that happens is when you find an editor that balances out your skill level perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I tend to be the kind of editor that, you know, helps with not necessarily the style of the writing, but the structure and the logical flow of the writing a lot more. Um, and while I have, you know, particular expertise in chemistry and neuroscience, and I can really help poke on the questions that should happen, happen during the reporting process on those specific stories, I'm going to need writers with specific background in like astrophysics to really know their yeah. stuff. Cause I won't know how to direct that, that kind of reporting, um, as well. Okay. Then what characteristics or a combination of characteristics do you think a science journalist should have to be good at their job? Just in general. Uh, an obsessive interest in the truth, yeah. <laughs> which is a squishy concept, um, and especially now, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the things that appealed to me about science in the beginning and to a lot of scientists and science journalists is that it is, you know, probably the best mechanism that we have for determining the truth mm-hmm. or as close to the truth as we possibly can get. Um, and I think... 
at least earlier in the process when I wasn't, you know, quite as engaged in the concepts of like scientific epistemology. Uh, I, you know, I looked at the, the contents of a scientific paper and I was like, okay, here is a, you know, finite amount of knowledge and I can relay that knowledge to somebody else. Now I think I'm, you know, I and science journalism as a whole are pushing on that idea a little bit more. It's not just about presenting the findings of a study. It's about yeah. questioning them deeply, looking at the, you know, the mechanisms that are driving that science um, and tearing them apart a little bit more. You need to be willing to question every single thing. Okay. So what would separate a science journalist from just a general journalist? Uh, nothing but beat expertise. I think that, you know, those fundamental truth uh, divining motivations are consistent across journalism. And that's why you have science journalists that don't have particular science background. I think Carl Zimmer is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but he is, you know, by exposing himself to different fields over his entire career, has gotten, you know, deeply engaged in those questions and he knows the subject matter really well. Like it's, it's pure beat expertise and exposure that allows you to ask those tough questions and find the real stories. All right. So can you tell us about the trajectory of your work experience in science journalism, uh, just starting from your master's degree, I guess, up until your current position with Wired? Yeah, I think I'm fairly atypical, actually. Um, I did a few internships as part of my master's at NYU. I worked at Discover Magazine, where I fact-checked and did some smaller front-of-book things. Um, and I interned at IEEE Spectrum, doing similar sort of stuff. And then I applied to a bunch of jobs right when I graduated uh, from the master's program and got, I think, fairly lucky in landing a staff fact-checking job at Wired. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been at Wired for the past five years now and have done a number of different jobs. I didn't start out doing straight-up science journalism here. Um, I fact-checked features and front-of-book items in the magazine, and I started writing a little bit more over time, trying to keep a focus on science. When there was a big science feature, I'd always be the one to put my hand up to fact-check it to get more exposure to that stuff. But I was fact-checking everything from features about like Korean rappers to Kim.com, um, which was honestly great because I still didn't have all of that journalistic you know, background, and that, that builds it up for me. Uh, and then I shifted to editing for the front of book after a little while. And then finally, um, when the last science editor for the website, Betsy Mason, left um, to become a night science fellow, um, I had an opportunity to, to take on the website, and I jumped in there. Uh, so what are your personal favorite topics to cover in terms of writing and editing? Um, are the, your interests more narrowed, or do you find yourself being attracted or drawn more to you know neuroscience or chemistry? Or do you find that your interests have become more varied over time? Um, I think the thing that I'm most interested in now is very broadly stories about meta science, the ways that science gets done and how those processes are changing. So very interested in, you know, changing practices around uh, open source code and preprints and peer review shifts. Um, I'm interested in how the internet is opening up all of those modes of communication between scientists and how that changes the types of science that gets done. Yeah, it's really cool. So you not only write and edit content, but um, you've also produced infographics as well as video and audio content uh, for various science media outlets. So what is this desired skill set of a science journalist now? Is it 
good enough to just be a good writer, or does a science journalist also have to have skills in creating graphics or video? Do they have to be good at social media? Um, so what is it like now in terms of what you need to be good at in order to get a job in science journalism? Gosh, that's a really hard one. I think uh, for freelancers, it can be especially useful to have a slightly broader skill set, but you shouldn't try to like educate yourself and become a fantastic video producer because so many places have those, you know, do those things in house. Um, it's a little tough for me to, to say broadly, actually, because I only work with exclusively writers. Um, I only, and because I only work too hard, I don't know how other outlets work as much. Okay. Um, you're also on Twitter. Um, your handle is at Katie M. Palmer. Um, how important do you think Twitter is for sharing your work and promoting Wired in general? Uh, I think it's incredibly important and I need to do a better job. <laughs> I don't engage on Twitter very much at all. Um, I, I think it's extraordinarily valuable as a place to find stories and connect with sources and connect with your community. Um, and I see tons of people using it a lot better than I do. <laughs> Is social media part of your job description or is that something you chose to do on your own? Um, it's varied over time. I used to be completely in charge of the Wired Science Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was tweeting out every single story that we did every day. So I had not so much uh, you know, personal Twitter identity, but was kind of the voice of Wired Science on Twitter. And over time, that's shifted. We've got like a much more robust social media team now, and they've taken over and like established the identities of those those individual verticals on their own too. Okay. Have you noticed um, a shift in the field of science journalism from print to now primarily online formats? I mean, certainly. And if I'm looking just at, you know, recent, recent hiring trends, you know, it seems like there are much more digital specific jobs that are opening up, uh, especially for people who are earlier in their careers and internally at Wired, we've definitely, you know, we're in the middle, we're still in the middle of a shift um, to increasing resources for the digital side. In the past, actually, uh, Wired.com and Wired the magazine were totally different entities, different companies, different businesses. Um, and it was around, I think, 2007 that they officially came under the same banner. Um, so we have a long history of like trying to get those two sides to work together really well. And I think we're finally getting to the place where people identify, you know, both the magazine content and the web content as, mm-hmm. as one brand. Um, but in general, yeah, there's a, there's a gigantic shift that's still happening. And I think a lot of uh, publications are grappling with it. You think this is a positive thing? Um, I think it, it's hard to say, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's mm-hmm. just a thing that's happening and we have to figure out how to, you know, make the best journalism possible on this new platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of bureaucratic things get in the way, you know, print magazines typically have, you know, longer, more established uh, relationships with advertisers. So it makes it easier to spend a lot more money on that content. But obviously you don't want to drive down the quality of the content that runs on the web, especially because it's stri- distributed so much further in many cases and there's so much more of it. Um, so I think everybody's still figuring out the money side of things and how to allocate those resources appropriately. And then the writers and the editors get caught in the middle just trying to, to do the best they can with as everything in the business shifts around them. Do you think this shift has had an impact on the job market? Um, just in terms of, you know, number of job opportunities available? Yeah, I mean, I've been sort of, you know, watching from afar. I've been lucky to be, you know, stable at Wired for five years, but at least seeing postings come up and seeing where 
you know, people from these master's programs are landing, it seems like the number of jobs, at least in the last couple of years, has actually been growing a little bit. And that's maybe uh, attributed in part to some of these venture capital funded media startups. There are a lot of like early stage hiring binges that those companies will go on. So the number of jobs might be inflated okay. um, for, for a little while, but that doesn't mean that they're, those jobs are going to be around forever. Okay. From what I understood, it was just, you know, the job market for science journalism and journalism in general has always been pretty bleak in terms of, you mean, I feel like um, there are a lot more freelancers in the field than people who actually have permanent positions. Oh, certainly. Like the overall trajectory is definitely, you know, decreasing budgets, Mm -hmm. decreasing number of opportunities. And there's been, I think, a little bit of a surge in the last couple of years. Okay. All right. So now I'd like to talk to you about your experiences working as a senior editor for Wired. Uh, So how is being an editor different from being a writer? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) It's having done a little bit of writing. They feel like completely different jobs to me. I wasn't prepared when I first started as an editor for just all of the organizational challenges that come along with it. It's much more about team building and God forbid the word delegation. Um, You know, I'm constantly just trying to talk with my writers as much as possible to get them developing the best ideas that they can, making their work as good as it possibly can be. And also making sure that we have stuff to run on the site every day. Um, So it's much more organizational than, uh, you know, idea generation. But you do have opportunities to contribute written material as well. Once in a while, yeah. It's tougher and tougher to fit in. But when I get the chance to report, it's always really great to dip my toes back in. Uh, Well, I noticed that a lot of uh, popular science publications, um, they tend to lump their science and health sections together. The Wired website doesn't actually have a health section, but it does include health-focused articles in its general science section. Uh, Mm -hmm. So why do you think that is? Do science and health not merit their own separate sections? Um, it's actually a conversation we've had internally a lot. Um, for a while, we were discussing launching a separate health vertical. Um, I think for us, it's just about trying to make the most logical distinctions for Wired's readership. So Wired covers a huge gamut of technology and innovation. And I think our science section actually isn't... Uh, we cover different things than other strict science publications, like you know, we lump in space and commercial space stuff too. It, it just happens to be sort of a catch-all for lots of the stuff that doesn't fall under our gear section or our business section. Um, so I think that it's totally possible that we'd have a second health vertical in the future. It's something that I'm deeply interested in. Um, I think, you know, our biotechnology and health coverage is the stuff that I'd be most likely to report on if I were writing instead of editing. Um, so I've, I think the focus on that ends up being more of a reflection of the individual writers and their beats and their expertise um, than the, the value of having a separate health section. Okay. Um, but are there certain scientific fields or topics that tend to get more coverage on Wired than others? Certainly. Um, I think, you know, again, based on sort of the, the beat expertise of the writers that we have right now, Megan Multaney is covering biotech for us. So that's a major area of coverage. Um, and Nick Stockton covers a lot of energy and climate news. Um, and then we have contractors who specialize um, at sort of 
a slightly lower density um, in another field. So we've got some astrophysics coverage, some robotics coverage, some commercial space coverage. Um, it's trying to find a balance when you're lumping all of science into one section at once. Do you personally feel like there are certain types of science that deserve more coverage on Wired? Um, I'm constantly trying to figure out the balance and, and trying to find places to fit in, you know, under underreported fields into the section. Um, trying to think if there's one in particular that I think we could cover more. I'd love to have more neuroscience coverage, but it's one of those things where, you know, if you have a strong biology reporter, mm-hmm. you're probably going to end up outsourcing those neuroscience stories every once in a while. It's again, a question of resources as it is for so many publications. Okay. Um, so why did you choose to pursue a position at Wired in the first place? And, and what has been your experience working with Wired? Um, I'm trying to remember what my application was like at the time, because I think when I applied, I actually hadn't read Wired very much. Um, but in the course of you know trying to nail my interview, I read a ton of back issues. And then I realized that the magazine actually spoke to me really specifically. I found like a tiny FOB story about uh, Tristan Parrish, who's an electronic musician who works in New York. And I had written like one of my, my master's pieces about him. And I thought he was so fascinating. I was like, wow, if this magazine figured out that this guy is cool, it's totally the place for me. Okay. Um, I remember there being a couple of other features, um, one written by Jason Tans, but I can't remember exactly what it was about. But I just, you know, found the really wide variety of stories that they wrote, like extremely compelling in their own way. Like they they cover so much different stuff. And I guess it was just like the optimism and the innovation that imbued each of those different weird things that made me realize it was it would be an interesting place to work. Then, of course, I was coming out of grad school and I kind of would have taken a job anywhere that would have me. I'm really glad it was here. Yeah. So what's it been like working with Wired for the last five years? Um, It's been pretty incredible. You know, it's gone through so many changes since I've been here. It's strange having it be the only place that I've worked and, you know, now being sort of in the middle of the seniority of people who have worked here, you know, having seen three different editors in chief um, and, you know, having worked on the magazine and then the website, I've worked with tons of different groups of people. Um, I've just been thrilled to see it evolve. Like every organization has its challenges and, you know, I get frustrated every single day about something or other, but um, I feel like people that I work with are all incredibly intelligent and all focused on making it better. One of my favorite jokes that I share with Adam Rogers, who's another science editor here and one of my mentors is that we're just trying to suck a little less every day. <laughs> I think we succeed at doing that. Okay, great. Okay, so I would like to wrap up this interview with some questions about the role of science journalism in society and society's perspective of science journalism. How do you think society currently perceives science news outlets and has the current perception evolved in response to the political climate? That's a huge question. It's an important (laughs) one, though. It's one that needs to be asked. Yeah. Um, You know, it's something that we're obviously, you know, everybody in the industry is trying to figure out right now. Um, It sort of circles back to, and here's where I'm going to probably lose my train of thought a couple of times because I've got so many thoughts about this and they're not all perfectly formed. They're all sort of works in progress. But I think part of what we're dealing with right now is that the country has different understandings of what science actually is and does Mm -hmm. that allows it to be misunderstood. Um, You know, obviously there is inherent bias in, in all science 
but the scientific method is what is the process that we use to try to eliminate that bias as much as possible. Um, and I think it is possible to point to scientists and their potential bias and politicize that. Is there like a certain process that goes into, um, you know, the research process that any journalist has to go through before they report on a particular topic or a particular story? Um, do you only assign um, uh, certain stories to experts within that particular field for that topic? Or do you allow your, your staff members to choose topics of interest or articles of interest or stories of interest, regardless of their expertise, and then allow them to do their own research, um, go through their own learning process on that particular scientific topic, and then just report based on that kind of short-lived educational experience? How does that process work? And is it good enough in terms of the accuracy of the product of the of this reporting or this research, which is the actual articles that are published? So the ideal situation for any wired story is a beat reporter with the expertise finding an interesting story within that field and reporting it out. But we cover, as we said, the whole like the wide world of science. So while we have beat experts in biotech and climate and energy and astrophysics and commercial space, we sometimes see interesting stories that fall outside those explicit fields. So when that happens and we think that it's a story that's really important to tell, we'll, you know, assign somebody to that story and they're good journalists. So they'll dive into the reporting and do the best job they can. How does the editing process in terms of accuracy of a science news story work? Um, so there are sort of two different levels. So for the magazine stories, we have a full fact-checking team that goes through every single line of every story and checks attributions and spellings and more fundamental, you know, like what is the main takeaway of this story and is that thing fundamentally true? For web stories, the onus is primarily on the writers and the editors. So the accuracy of every sentence falls primarily on the writers. And then if I see something that kind of raises a red flag for me, I will point it out to the writer. But we don't have any established fact-checking procedures for web stories. So what do you think are the difficulties in acting as a kind of liaison between scientists and the public? What are the responsibilities? The difficulties when, you know, uh, from your experience in reporting before you were an editor um, or just from speaking to your reporters and asking them about their experiences. Do you notice if there are certain difficulties that reporters experience when they are trying to discuss science with scientists when, during interviews and translating that for the public? I guess that's just the that's the fundamental problem in in all reporting. You're trying to take something enormously complex, mm -hmm. understand it in as much granular detail as you can from your sources, while also trying to get them to add a pithy quote that you can throw in, mm -hmm. um, and then translating that into something that's going to really grab a reader and make them interested in something that they might not have known that they would mm -hmm. be interested in. Okay, so do you think? We should cut out the middleman and just, you know, would it be better to just cut out the middleman and just teach scientists how to communicate their research with the public better? Do you feel like science journalists are necessary? Um, I don't think it's an either or. I think, um, you know, we've seen a ton of scientists become much better science communicators in the last decade. And that's 
a huge boon to science, but it's also important to have journalists there to to do that more investigative work, to ask harder questions. Um, so it's not just, you know, presenting research and disseminating important educational information to the public, mm-hmm. but, you know, digging a little bit deeper into the processes, um, potential biases, you know, potential problems in the scientific process. Okay. So there seems, I think, currently to be a kind of a, um a public suspicion of scientists and their research um, through the science news. Uh, so do you, how do you think the relationship between scientists and the public could be improved upon? How can we build up that trust? Yeah, I mean, this is the really tough thing because, uh, you know, as we've seen from psychological research, simply telling somebody that they're wrong and presenting factual information to them is not going to change their mind if they're already set in a particular, you know, way of thinking, um, you know, confirmation bias will set in. Uh, so it's a huge gnarly problem, uh, for science journalists and scientists. And I think all journalists, um, you know, one of the things that we've been struggling in the last struggling with in the last year or so is how to make sure that our writing alienates as few people as possible without, you know, pandering or, you know, giving, you know, giving too much credence to ideas that we don't think are accurate. Um, you know, you don't want to push away readers that might believe in some like naturalistic healing phenomenon, but you also want to be able to have the potential to convince somebody that they shouldn't be taking that, that weird supplement because it might hurt them. <laughs> um, and it's a really tough balance to strike. Um, and we sometimes mess it up. Sometimes you know, Wired has historically had a slightly snarky tone um, that can be super off-putting sometimes. Um, and sometimes we overdo it on that in stories where it's really going to push people away. But that's, you know, with any any story that has, you know, that sort of uh, political division potentially in it, we're, we're constantly thinking about the presentation of that. Okay. So my last question for you then is, what do you think is essentially the role of science journalism in society? To spread truth. I mean, just like all other journalism, as we discussed before, you know, science is the best method we have to get as close to the truth as possible. And the better that we can explain how that process works and the close to truths that arise from that process, um, the more informed the public will become. And hopefully the better society we can build. All right, Kate, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Katie Palmer, Senior Editor of the Online Health and Science section for Wired. Up next, we have Michael Siegel, Editor-in-Chief of Nautilus Magazine. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me now is Michael Siegel, founding editor and editor-in-chief of Nautilus Magazine. Michael, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. Well, so let's start with your story. 
Uh, so you graduated from the University of Alberta with a Bachelor of Science in Engineering Physics. Then you earned a doctorate degree in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science from MIT. So how does an engineer become interested in science writing? There's actually a middle step in there. After I graduated from Alberta, I uh, decided I want to study philosophy for a while. Okay. I went to the University of Calgary, and I was a, a philosophy and humanities student for a year. And then I actually worked at the university as a research engineer for three years and earned a master's of engineering there. Um, and at MIT, I took creative writing classes and uh, kept that part of myself alive, the humanities part. So I've always been interested in both sides. And, um, and my career after graduate school has reflected that. Okay. So how and when did you become interested specifically in science journalism? My interest was more from the science writing and philosophy side mm -hmm. than science journalism. Um, so at Nature, which is the job I had after graduate school, I tried to start a sort of synthetic culture and science magazine as part of their internal business competition program, where we were asked to come up with an idea for a new product or service and then run it through management. And I was interested in context and the ideas underneath science. It's kind of what drew me to uh, publishing work in the first place. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea got midway through management ranks and it was decided that it wasn't going to be very profitable. Mm -hmm. Stopped. And when I saw the opportunity to, um, you know, start a new magazine with John Steele, our publisher, um, I, I took that opportunity. So it, it's, it's journalism. Yes, but it's also about trying to understand how, um, ideas fit together, what science is doing and sort of some of the unspoken stories behind science. So were you interested in philosophy science and engineering at the same time throughout your education or did these different interests compete throughout time? Did you feel like sometimes you were more interested in science or engineering and other times you were more interested in writing? Definitely. Yeah. There was, there was a competition for mind space and also for core space. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in first year of undergrad, you know, I took philosophy courses in, in some of my available slots the Canadian engineering program is very focused on the core disciplines and there are a lot of required courses. So I didn't have much of an opportunity to take those courses, which is part of why I, I took a year after undergrad to study those. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always thought about how to uh, keep those interests alive. So at what point did you decide to pursue a career in science journalism instead of a career in engineering? It was really after graduate school. So I kind of followed my nose in the sense that I applied for different kinds of positions. I applied for postdocs, for industry, for academia, and also for publishing. And I went through the interview process and met the people. And when I applied for Nature, um, you know, I visited their London office and I met the people there. And uh, it was a great vibe. Um, people were really broadly interested in everything. Which is, which is a kind of a luxury of the publishing industry. And they were talking to scientists at their level, but they were also able to move across scientific boundaries and, you know, national boundaries and laboratory boundaries with ease. And, um, so I decided to go that way. Okay. So, uh, would you say you're still interested in conducting scientific research or is that definitely just something of the past now? 
Oh, I mean, I would, if I had the time or bandwidth <clears throat> to do, to do scientific research, you know, Saturday night, I would definitely do it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of an impossibility to do yes. a, serious, a serious effort in both. It's not an impossibility, but it's very difficult. There are people who do it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I still love science on its own for its own sake. And, and I still love writing and, and philosophy and all those things. Do you have personal projects, scientific projects you do on your own or? No. No. Okay. No, it's Nautilus is pretty, pretty busy. <laughs> okay. Yep, for sure. Um, so then I'd like to ask you, um, how did you learn to write? Did you get some kind of training in, in science writing specifically, or is it something you just build up your interest in philosophy and writing over time? So is it something more self-taught? But I'd like specifically want to know how did you train yourself to write um, and science, write about science for the public? The short answer is I don't know. I, I don't have science writing training of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved writing in junior high school. You know, we had in-class essays. We had, you know, big thesis projects. I did international baccalaureate and wrote a high school graduating thesis um, and then I took, like I said, creative writing courses in grad school. Um, you know, I, I found the experience of writing a PhD enjoyable mm-hmm. to synthesize and crystallize everything that I'd learned. Sometimes you only really understand what it is that you know when you try to express it. Um, especially in graduate school, towards the end of your, of your program, it can feel like you actually don't know anything. You know, you spend <laughs> some time chasing threads and being in lab. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the time, of course, your experiments don't work. So, um, writing can be an antidote to the feeling of being lost in space. So I enjoyed those times. I, I don't know that I've had specific training in science right now. Do you think any scientist is capable of teaching themselves how to write or how to communicate with the public about their research? Uh, what skills do you think are necessary to be good at that? I think the skill falls from the interest. Mm-hmm. And- I think reading a lot helps, and um, I think that being interested in how your research has a broader impact and, have, and what the broader context of your research is, uh, is a benefit. Okay. So could you then take us through the trajectory of your career from earning your PhD to working with Nautilus now? Sure. So like I said, so after my PhD, I did a short postdoc and um, was applying for jobs during that time. And I decided on the opportunity at Nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there for four years. I was a editor at the journal Nature Nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. So Nature, there's, there's sort of the flagship journal and then there's a bunch of topical journals. And the topical journals have about three or four editors usually. Um, so while I was there, I handled device physics papers. I did a bit of writing um, and I did this little project. It didn't take a lot of time. It was maybe a few months to try to put together the synthetic journal. Um, and after four years, I felt like I needed a new uh, adventure, a new, um, some new skill set that I could learn. And I saw this ad for uh, a science and philosophy magazine that was kind of alarmingly vague, actually. Um, and so I, I chucked in an application uh, met with John, I think two days later, and we had a good conversation about what we felt a new science magazine should do. 
Mm-hmm. And we kind of clicked and he said, well, you know, why don't we, you know, start to work together a little bit over the next couple of weeks, come down to New York. I was in Boston at the time, mm-hmm. um, meet my consultants and, you know, let's, let's think about what we can do together. And eventually I sort of got excited about it and, and left to do it. Okay. So uh, just for our audience, Nature is an academic journal that publishes peer-reviewed scientific papers. Um, so how is working for an academic journal different from working for a, a popular science magazine? And why did you choose to make that switch? Well, in the face of it, they're very different. One is um, serving the scientific community exclusively, yeah. almost exclusively. Um, it's, it's written by scientists and for scientists. Yeah. And the revenue comes from primarily library subscriptions. Um, in the other case, it's, it's really for the public. Scientists read Nautilus, but the majority of our readers are, you know, just members of the public. Um, I think the more surprising thing about the two jobs is how similar they are. In both cases, you're looking for a really good story. And any scientist that's submitted to sort of the CNS journals that sell nature and science um, knows that there has to be a really compelling narrative. So you have your results and you have your techniques and they could be very brilliant. But why is it worthy of a more general audience? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there a conceptual shift? Is there a surprise? And so... Uh, my time at Nature was kind of training and thinking that way. I think I've tried to do some of the same at Nautilus. So we're writing for a general audience, but you know they also will have been exposed to a lot of the you know news in genetics or um, technology. And so if we're going to contribute to the conversation, we want to publish something a little bit different. So we want to have that sort of surprising vantage point. And so that's a point of similarity between the two. Why I decided to do it. Um, I suppose it's kind of the, the um, next step in my desire to be broader. So there's, there's Nautilus is a very broad publication. We publish fiction, we publish economics, um, all the sciences. We publish straight philosophy, um, history. So um, you know the the breadth is is considerably greater than in nature in terms of topic. Um, that, that was very appealing, and also you know the it's a project that that we were able to start from nothing. So. Nature is a very, very old, prestigious, established brand, and to start a brand from nothing and to see it to, to see it grow the way it has has been really rewarding. Okay, so let's talk about Nautilus in more detail. Uh, do you know where the idea for this magazine came from? Yeah, so John Steele was, you know, was the founder. He raised the initial money for it from Templeton, um, and he was a vice president at uh, IMG, which is a talent agency, among other things, <clears throat> and. Um, his boss, Ted Forsman, who ran the company, died, and uh, he was always interested in philosophy as an undergraduate degree in philosophy, always interested in science, and he had been in conversation with Templeton, and they'd expressed an interest in starting the magazine. So that conversation turned into a grant, and you know they were interested in a synthetic, you know, science and context magazine, um, but unlike their previous efforts, it was not going to be in-house. So they were not going to have editorial control, and it was not going to be sort of an arm of Templeton. It would be outside, and um, so that's that was the stage things were at when I met John. Okay. So whose idea was it to title the magazine Nautilus? Is there a, is there some kind of special meaning behind the title? It was John, it was John's idea. I think it was inspired by a symbol that he saw during his conversations with Templeton. Okay. All right. So this magazine is obviously very different from any other popular science publication in that it's not just a science magazine. It contains elements of culture, uh, philosophy, and art. Can you explain why Nautilus takes this uh, multidisciplinary approach to communicating information to the public? Yeah, so I think it's important 
for a science magazine to know the value proposition that it's offering its readers. And there are lots of different value propositions, and there should be, and different magazines have different propositions. So some might say, um, you're already interested in, in the science that we're going to tell you about, and so the value proposition is we're going to do a really good job of explaining it, but we take for granted that you're interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, other magazines say that, uh, you know, we don't know if you're interested, but we think that you're um, a practical person, and we're going to tell you science that you can use, right? Um, and sort of newspaper columns often do that, and of course it varies inside magazines and so on. So our value proposition is we're going to tell you the context of the science. We're going to tell you how it connects to your life and to the big questions that you have in your life. Sort of who am I? What is the world like? Um, science, I think, is unique in that it's slowly but surely answering some of our oldest questions and. If you can drive to that sort of deeper underlying context for any given science story, that that's a unique value proposition. So that's what we try to do. Okay. Would you personally consider Nautilus to be a, a straight science magazine or is it something completely different? Um, I guess I'm asking how important is the scientific perspective for Nautilus compared to the philosophical perspective or the artistic perspective? Um, the scientific perspective is, is absolutely essential. Um, it would be, it would be, um, not the same magazine and, and a failure if Nautilus didn't represent a kind of skeptical empiricism in, in its thinking. And so, you know, for example, with climate change, I think there's a big confusion about what counts as knowledge and what counts as certainty. So it's true that, you know, there's not 100.0% agreement among scientists about the details of climate change. And so the interpretation of that is very different on different sides of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's important to communicate to people that actually, essentially no science has, has absolute certainty, right? That every theory is subject to um, revision or being subsumed into the next theory. So, so um, the, the, the scientific angle is, is really at the core of the magazine. Um, but I'm not sure I would draw a super sharp distinction between that and, and a philosophical perspective, because there's something philosophical about that worldview. I mean, that's that's one worldview among others. There are other worldviews you could have. And the moment that you start talking about worldviews, then that becomes philosophy. Okay. All right. Um, also, Nautilus is different in its approach to publishing, actually. So the way it works, um, correct me if I'm wrong. So one issue is published per month online, and each issue contains four chapters, where one chapter is published per week. And then there are six issues of the magazine published in print per year. They're published bi-monthly. Um, okay. And then each of these issues, at least online, revolves around a particular topic or theme. And the topics can be quite broad, you know, like uh, power or identity. Um, so could you explain the process of choosing themes and the chapters? Sure. So before I answer that, just to back up to explain why we have themes and the motivation for that. So because we want to be synthetic and connect science together and connect it to context, we decided early on that that themes would help us do that because um, it forces us as editors and and our writers to imagine uh, a conversation among the pieces and to create uh, links among the pieces that might not otherwise exist. Uh, the, the process is, is really just, you know, we brainstorm for issues ahead of time and we try to think of issues that are sufficiently broad to allow a very diverse set of um, stories, uh, but not so broad as to be meaningless. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we wouldn't do the neuron, for example, as an, as an issue because it's, 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 it's too narrow and we want to have sort of surprising stories in there that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, so... Once we have the issue in place, we put out a call for stories to our writers, and we also um, come up with our own ideas. And then the final issue is a mixture of uh, writer ideas and our ideas, 
the chapters sort of emerge at the last minute once we have a lineup and we sort of try to group um, stories together into topics that form the chapters. The idea behind the chapters is really to make it more of a kind of a, a narrative book experience. Yeah. So is each issue supposed to tell one cohesive story about a topic through a diverse range of perspectives, or does it not matter if the articles are not cohesive at all? So is it more about exploring a topic in each issue, or is it more about delivering a full spectrum of information about that topic? So the way we think about the individual stories in each issue is we kind of think about them as points on a, on a geometrical shape, and we want the points to be as far apart from each other as possible and to describe as big a volume as possible. So the bigger the volume, the more of that topic we've captured. Um, now, we only do, you know, um, maybe 12 to 15 features a month, plus blogs and plus channel content. Uh, the channels are our verticals. So we don't have a huge number of stories to do that with, but we try to have a diversity of stories. So we wouldn't, we would try to avoid, you know, four psychology stories on the same topic in the mm -hmm. same issue. So it's really, it's kind of an exploration, but you know, the, I, I try to guide the reader a little bit with the editorials and the issues and, and draw out some of the themes. Are you afraid that you'll ever run out of topics? So that was a question that we were asked almost immediately in you know, issue two or three. And, <laughs> you know, uh, we thought, oh, no, well, what, what, if, what if we do run out of topics? And we thought, well, you know, we can always just circle back. Like we can have a two-year cycle and circle back to small topics. Yeah. But here we are after, you know, after four years. And there's – it's hard to imagine us running out of topics in the, in the near term. Are you afraid the magazine won't be able to, to do justice to a topic in just one issue? Well, I, I think that um, we've really never been able to be completely comprehensive about any of the topics we've covered, just because we're, we're, we're a tiny magazine with a small staff. Mm -hmm. We publish a relatively small number of stories. So we want to give a taste of the of the topic, and we want to give uh, an understanding of the diversity mm -hmm. and the possible connections, but um, it, we're, we're not comprehensive. Okay. Um, so another thing that, that sets Nautilus apart from most science magazines is, is that you don't, so you already mentioned, you don't seem to have a permanent writing staff uh, are all the articles provided by contributing writers? Not all of them. The majority are. We also have uh, interns and writing fellows that circulate through the magazine. So they contribute some and some of the staff also write. Uh, so how do you go about looking for the contributing writers for a topic or an issue? So it's, it's really um, been a top-down and bottom-up process simultaneously. So we started with obviously no lists and, and um, just writers that we knew. And, you know, over the years, we've built up a list of you know, something approaching a couple thousand writers on, on a um, call to pitches email list. Mm -hmm. And so every month we send out um, about four months ahead of the actual publication date, we send out a call for pitches for a new topic. Okay. So, so, so we get a bunch of ideas that way. And then also we have our own internal ideas about what we want to have covered and we'll approach writers that we think would be particularly good. Or if there's a match between something that we wanted to do and something that's pitched to us, then we'll have a conversation and sort of evolve the idea that way. Okay. And then what's the purpose of Nautilus's board, board of advisors? The Board of Advisors um, helps a lot in the early days, steering the magazine, directing us towards writers. Some of them have written for us. Um, you know, we've asked, we ask them questions about um, a, a controversial topic, ask them for guidance. Uh, they're there for us when we need them. Okay. So do you rely on the contributing writers on to be scientifically accurate in their articles? We have a fact check process. Mm -hmm. uh, every every article goes through. Um, uh, but sure, yeah, we rely on writers to do as good a job as they can. Okay, all right. And then art and design um, are very important components of the magazine. Uh, why is this the case? 
Yeah, so uh, early on in the planning stages, we obviously wanted to have a very visually impactful magazine. That's an important part of any magazine. And initially, we thought we would, you know, do the usual thing and have beautiful pictures, photographs. Um, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, a lot of other magazines already do that. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, it's, it's easier to um, distill a narrative or, or create a narrative through illustration. And then third of all, we were kind of surprised to discover that illustrations are cheaper. So it's actually cheaper often to commission an illustration from scratch than to purchase a you know a, a top flight photograph. Um, so the illustration has been a really enjoyable part of doing the magazine because illustrations all come out of conversations with the um art directors and editors on the on staff and, and the artists. And very few of the illustrations are first drafts. So we'll talk with the artist about, you know, what is the narrative of the story and we'll ask them to create their own narrative in their art that's parallel to the narrative of the story, but not identical to it. Okay. And why is that? I think it, it deepens the narrative experience of the magazine. So the, the mission of the magazine is to present science in context and to connect scientific results to broader narratives. And so if we can do that through the text as well as through the illustration, mm-hmm. then we have two swings at that. Okay. All right. So Nautilus is, is a pretty young magazine. Uh, it only started in 2013. So can you describe the the difficulties in establishing a new magazine uh, in terms of logistics, uh, gaining a readership? Every, every aspect of every aspect of starting it is a difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the first difficulties is, is that there's a, there's a lot of noise in media and there's, there's a very high publication frequency and volume already out there. And to, to add your own, um, voice to that, um, cacophony is, is not, it's not necessarily going to be heard. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a challenge. I think building a team is a challenge. I think the, the skill set required for a magazine, especially a startup magazine is very broad and very hard to test, uh, in an interview or looking at TV. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the most important challenges for a magazine is to, is to know itself, to know what the voice of the magazine is and to really be faithful to that, um, so that readers will find it. It takes a long time for, for readers to, to hear about a magazine and it takes time for them to figure out if it's to their liking. And, you, and over that time, you need to be consistent and deliver consistent quality and a consistent voice. Yeah. So I noticed that Nautilus invests heavily in its website and online content. Uh, have you noticed a shift in the field of science journalism uh, from print to now online formats? And do you think this has had an effect on the job market? So I've been doing this for about five years, and a lot of those shifts started before I began in the industry. Mm-hmm. But definitely, um, you know, every almost every print circulation that you look at is falling, and yeah. uh, advertising revenue is falling almost every we look at it. Um, so part of the response of the industry has been to try other channels. And there's there's terrific video channels about science on YouTube. There are terrific podcasts. Um, and there's there's new mag- magazines that are uh, digital only or primarily digital. So it's a natural response. Um, it's challenging in its own way because uh, online advertising revenue per ad is much smaller. So advertising for us amounts to essentially zero um, as far as revenue. There's a small amount of it, but it's, 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 it's not significant. So now I'd like to get into some final questions about the role of science journalism in society. So how do you think society currently perceives science news outlets or popular science publications? Do you think uh, the public trusts science journalists or do you think there is uh, a lack of trust and credibility? 
Yeah, so um, I think the first thing I would say here is the reaction to Nautilus <clears throat> has been really reaffirming as far as the public's interest in science. Um, we started with nothing, and uh, you know it, it was perfectly reasonable for us to expect um, you know very little attention. Uh, but we've gotten not just a, a good critical response, but we've earned um, a strong following of readers—about five million readers a year right now—and um, together with the advent of other new titles, you know, my read is that there's actually a burgeoning of interest in science uh, among people. Um, I think that people recognize that <clears throat> science is becoming increasingly important in um, their lives, in um, how they live their lives, in health, careers, um, education, um, and technology is increasingly how increasingly affecting how we interact with each other. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a distrust of journalism, not necessarily science journalism. So if you go to Pew Research and look at, um, their polls, you know, uh, people show a consistently high interest in science and respect for science. It's, you know, one of the top, I think two or three, uh, pursuits or professions as far as respect. Uh, but, uh, journalism has kind of, kind of, you know, slid in the, in the last few years. Um, and I think that is a reflection of, um, a very divided um, political scene in the United States, at least, um, and um, a lot of vitriol. So, you know, to some extent, there's, you know, science journalism is, is on that spectrum somewhere between one end and the other. Okay, so do you think maybe the public just um, is more suspicious of how journalism in general seems to portray scientific facts inaccurately? Do you think that's more the case here? Um, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's this famous study about how people react to climate change facts. So um, if you teach people more and more climate change facts and, and make sure they really understand it, it has a surprisingly small effect uh, on their position on climate change issues, whether humans cause climate change, whether we should do something about that. And the reason for that is that um, there's larger identity politics going on here. So people put facts into their identity matrix and sort of decide on how to deal with facts that way. So uh, I, I don't think that, that the public disbelieves, um, you know, uh, factual reporting straight out, but I think that they um, slot those facts into, into a broader uh, identity narrative, and that's very hard to shift. Okay, so then how do you think the relationship between journalists in general and the public could be improved upon? Yeah, so I think when it comes to, to science journalists, um, I you know what I would encourage um, journalists to do, and what I encourage as Nautilus writers to do, is to think carefully about the narratives that they're portraying. So um, you know, in addition to presenting the facts of the science and how <clears throat> you know the research was done, it's important to understand what narrative you're presenting those facts along with. So in the absence of a narrative, if you just present the facts, I think people will default to their political narratives or <clears throat> their ideological narratives. Um, and, you know, science has terrific narratives and, and we can bring those to bear. And when we do that, I think we can sort of enter that fray um, and compete. So then how do you think Nautilus can change the public's perspective of science and science journalism? Well, our mission is really to be very narrative heavy. So, so you know, we're trying to do exactly that. We're trying to um, contextualize science and attach science to narrative, um, uh, not just so that people have a new entry point into science and a new way of getting Getting interested in science, but also so that we can enter into those bigger conversations and, you know, compete with those other um, narratives that are out there. All right, Michael, thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. If you want to learn more about Katie Palmer or Michael Siegel, you can check out their links and social media on our website 
at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 